0: and
1: overwrought to find what we <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. I'm Andy. Hi, I'm Jara. Hi, I'm Sue. And today we're having our very first book club discussion, which is super exciting. So over the last couple months, our crew has been reading Uhura's Song as our very first book. I hope that you guys have had a chance to join the discussion on our Goodreads page. So I wanted to start out with some of the comments from there. Jared, did you want to read the first one? Sure. So Mike says, I rarely need an excuse to read this
2: novel. It's been a firm favorite of mine since I bought the paperback when it was originally published. It has to be said a lot of early to mid-original series novels were lacking in many areas, and perhaps this is why I tend to treasure Uhura's song remove the Trek and you could still have an exceptional piece of sci-fi storytelling. It's the focus on the characters and the creation of intelligent cultures that seems to combine perfectly, and the trappings of Trek are just that. Although, no question, Janet wrote the crew of Enterprise very, very well. And so that was for Mike.
1: Yeah, I think that he he gets at some stuff that's really true there, and we'll discuss it more throughout the podcast. Uh, Read our other kind of general comment from Ruth.
0: It's wonderful to spend time with these characters we know and love, but to feel they are really human beings rather than characters loosely anchored around the plot of the week. And this is particularly true of Uhura. I came to Trek through watching TNG on its first airing on BBC way back when. I had seen a few of the classic Trek movies and loved them. Voyage Home, woo! That's that's what she says. <laughs> But never cut more than an episode or two of TOS. I'm now part of the way through season three of my first full watch, and I must confess I'm amazed that my lifelong perception of the TOS crew as an ensemble is in no way backed up by the paltry amount of screen time given to the non Kirk Spock Bones characters. As one of you remarked on your O Captain podcast, How do you get an actress as wonderful as Nichelle Nichols and just squander her presence by literally consigning her to the background? So yeah, I'm really enjoying Kagan's take on the inner lives of these characters. It makes you ache for missed opportunities and for the possibilities that exist for future series in the hands of some thoughtful and diverse writers. And that's from Ruth.
1: Yeah, I really like both of those comments and thanks very much for uh, getting into the discussion on our Goodreads. We're going to keep that going and hopefully grow it as much as we can. So Uhura song, I hope you've read it because if not, we're about to spoil the heck out of it for you. If not, uh, maybe pause and then go and read the book and come back. It's
2: a quick read. It
1: is. And it's really, it flows really well, so it's easy to read. So I thought we could start with just a basic kind of synopsis. So we start off with basically a plague on the planet of something I'd never be able to pronounce because it is literally all vowels. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah <Yow. laughs> let's call it yow. yeah it's it's spelled e-e-i-a-u-o and i was really impressed that she managed to get like so many vowels into one word with no consonants very nice um so it wasn't hard to read but now that we're gonna have to say it out loud i'm like
0: i was thinking it was kind of like meow <laughs> but without the
1: m that is perfect that is now <laughs> that is now my headcanon for that yeah it totally works okay so uh we have this really terrible disease on Yao, um adf it's called and we kind of start with mccoy trying to find a cure for this disease and it's it's pretty clear that this is a really big problem um which i think is good because it adds to the stakes so what do we think of the setup i guess Did you mention that the Eowians are cat people? I didn't. And you know what? That's super important because that's basically the reason we decided to read this (laughs) book.
2: (laughs) We're all cat people. So we were like, cats in Star Trek. I think that the description I read of this book basically said it's about Uhura using music to unite two estranged planets of cat people. And I was like, we are in. Um, But like, that comes up super quickly in the book, too, because Right away, she just does a really good job writing both original characters and the original Enterprise crew. Like, I love McCoy um, is, like, treating these patients, and he's super invested in curing this disease. But he also, you know, makes time to gripe about the fact that the cats get their hair on
1: everything. Yes. And I also like how she brings up the nictating membranes a lot. Like she uses that in describing the diseases. So for people that are not as Mm -hmm. cat lady as we are, um, the nictating membranes of a cat's eye is basically like that extra eyelid underneath. Um, You'll see it when cats blink really slowly, which, by the way, is like cat for I love you because they trust you enough to blink really slowly. So she definitely knows cats. I say that right off the bat. She knows cats and Bones. Yes, definitely. Of course Bones would get annoyed with all the cat fur.
0: She knows this crew.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, in reading this, there's no doubt about it. They're all spot on. Absolutely. Everybody. It's fantastic. And that's
2: really interesting because she had to research the whole series and watch all the episodes. So I, I feel like she grasped it for someone who didn't really have that background.
0: Can we make the people who write a lot of Star Trek novels research the characters <laughs> that they're writing?
1: <laughs> this is my first one, so I guess I'm being spoiled right off the bat because I was really impressed with how she nailed all of their voices right away. So that's definitely a strength and it's, it's something that I think continues throughout throughout the novel and it's not all based on the show either some of it comes purely from what our characters would do in this new situation based on you know what we know about them and that i think is harder to do than than people think all right so kind of moving forward through the plot so we find out that uhura has a friend named sunfall who is a (laughs) yawan I love that now. And so she kind of starts to to unravel this interesting kind of twist that the Yaoans might not be from Yao. They might be from somewhere else. They won't admit it, but she has a couple of these songs that her friend Sunfall taught her that seems like that might be the case. And she goes to Spock, and Spock and her kind of put their heads together in a really lovely way, I think. And Spock does some scientific analysis and decides that No, this is not their planet of origin, which really makes things interesting because that means that maybe the cure for this disease is not within this planet. Maybe it's somewhere else. I like that Uhura's love of music is not something that you would think would be used as an actual problem-solving device. And in this case, it is. And then it it just fits really well Mm -hmm. together with having Uhura coming from a purely emotional, kind of creative standpoint, and then Spock being coming from... A scientific perspective. Because she's restraining her emotions
2: out of respect for the fact that they would make him uncomfortable. And he tells her not to do that because he respects her and respects the emotional intelligence she has. And that's really cool.
1: This, this book makes me like the idea of Spock and Uhura together way more than the JJ movies does. Because I actually can kind of see it in this book, why they might be drawn to each other. Whereas in the movies, I feel like they just threw them together. They do have this really lovely scene where they all demand that Spock be human. And she says, but you're not human, Mr. Spock, any more than Sunfall is. You're unique. If I sometimes find your behavior shocking, I've come to realize that even the shock can be valuable. You make us stop and reconsider and sometimes take a fresh view of things. And I just think that's really nice because they do. They expect him to react like a human quite often. Um, And that's where a lot of the emotional arc of his character comes from. But it's pretty rare that they go, you're not human. We shouldn't expect you to be. Well, not fully human, I guess. But he wants to be Vulcan. and I think that comes up, too, in this book. That he he wants to be seen as Vulcan.
0: That is a big theme of this book as it goes on. How people want to see you and how you choose to identify. But there's a whole part for the Yeowins and the (laughs) (laughs) Sivawins. (laughs) <laughs> the, the two races of cat people mm-hmm. about choosing their name because for them names have meaning and it does mirror what Spock and Uhura are going through when her her friend Sunfall is sick she wants to present that she's pulled together and not too emotional but she is she's basically freaking out inside and Spock wants to be Vulcan when everybody else wants to him to react like a human.
1: Basically accepting other people's differences as a part of them and not judging them for it. So moving forward, we get an extra layer of urgency in the fact that this ADF syndrome becomes communicable to humans and Nurse Chapel gets very sick so we've established through this really great series of scenes of uh, the crew working together to find this planet of origin for the Aeons, because they will not talk about it, to the point where we have one of our characters, she would rather kill herself.
0: It, it turns out that the the people of Yao were essentially exiled from their homeworld. It's this huge shame that is around whatever event that happened, And I think they say up to 2000 years ago, this, I think it's, it's Quickfoot, isn't it? It's the doctor who, who is helping McCoy who breaks down and says, look, I'll tell you what I know, but it's such a shameful thing that after I tell you, I'm going to kill myself.
1: Oh, we should talk about some of our new characters. We have a lot of original characters in this book. And like 75% of them are women. Yeah, there's a handful of male characters when we get to Sivau, but for most part, the new characters are all women. Um, Quickfoot being the, the doctor that's helping McCoy on Yao, and then...
0: Oh, I think I used the wrong pronoun for her, though. I think I called her a he.
1: So Quickfoot, and then the biggest new character that we get is Dr. Evan Wilson, who is the acting chief medical officer while Bones is on the planet. So she basically joins the crew for this adventure.
2: We also meet Dr. Mickey Mickiewicz. Yes! Who is commander I guess of a medical ship that comes to help out when the humans start getting infected and she's helping Bones with stuff as well and she's pretty badass. We
1: also find out that the Enterprise has a crew member that is felinoid, is how they put it, and she has this amazing name that I couldn't even begin to pronounce. I kept reading it as Snuffleupagus, something like that. It's like Snarfler. It's cool
2: because they call her Snarl as a nickname, but then Wilson gives Kirk a lecture on how that's not her actual name, and you guys should actually make an effort to call her by the name she wants to be called, and it, it goes to that theming about um, how you want to identify and how other people should respect that throughout the book.
1: Absolutely. And um, Kirk agrees with this. It's nice because Evan's ready to, to fight about it and he's like, I'm totally with you. And apparently it kind of hurts to say her name because it's very guttural and he still makes the effort to do so.
0: Now, is she the same one that is in the animated series? Because I haven't started watching that yet.
2: No, the animated series is mores who's a In this, she's not defined as a And uh, in the animated series, She looks sort of like a lion woman, and she's voiced by Major Barrett and has a hilarious purring sound. Uh, So a different character.
1: Yeah, uh, but she is the one that apparently Evan learns how to fight cat people with. Dr. Wilson has been having fun fighting basically everybody on the Enterprise. She actually injures Sulu. And then she also does like some sort of bout with, god, I have to call her Snarl, because I have no idea how to pronounce that. I swear I would try if I had heard it pronounced, but it's written, so I have no idea.
2: I think that was on purpose that the author made it so we would know it was really hard for humans to pronounce.
1: I promise, Snarl, if I met you in real life, I would try to pronounce your name correctly. Okay, so I think that's all of the new characters we really get. I mean, we get a couple of small ones. I like how some of the random ensigns are all women. They really have a lot of female characters here, um, but none of them really make a huge impact. It's just kind of nice to see that their default wasn't all dudes.
0: Yeah, and then we get more when we get to the other planet, the homeworld.
1: Yes, and so the the bulk of this book is spent on Sivau. So they have been given orders from Starfleet, and hey, apparently the president of the Federation is a woman. So they get kind of the okay to ignore the prime directive. So that's how serious things are, that they are going to go to this planet and do first contact and they're going to be completely open about it and spend the rules a little bit because things are so dire. So the away party is Spock, Uhura, and Kerr, Chekhov, and Dr. Evan Wilson. And they meet up with this race of new cat people.
2: The landing party introduces themselves, and basically as soon as they say why they're there, the Savalans kind of freak out.
1: There is a similar cultural taboo among them to never speak of the exile. Both the exiled and the people left behind, both of them have the same cultural taboo, um, not to speak of it. And there's
2: also sort of a weird difference between the languages of the two people because of how they've changed over time. But Uhura manages to use her knowledge of the songs to be able to do the physical gestures of greeting that let them know that they're friendly.
1: Yeah, which is awesome. They do, like, this claw-like. I, I picture what um, what Guinan does when she's going to fight Q, the claw hands. That's what I was picturing.
0: <laughs> the way they describe it, though, this is where we get cat people again, right? It makes me think of, like, when cats are kneading. You know, the claws yes. come out and then they retract. Also, she's essentially using the language that she sang in these songs that she learned from Sunfall to speak this ancient dialect in what they call the old tongue which makes me even more annoyed that she essentially was reading out of a klingon dictionary in the movies but that's another story
2: that's exactly what i thought of too i was just like this is what we're supposed to see is you know a communications officer who's a linguist who can make these kinds of of leaps and say you know well these are the older words and i can reconstruct some elements of this language from that
1: So the Savoans are at first, obviously, this is a culture that doesn't have star travel. And they're very wary of the crew because, you know, they've come out of the woods and they're like, hey, what's up?
2: And they don't have fur or tails, this weird
1: clothes and stuff. Uhura gets right in the level and she picks a uh, Savoan named Jinx who looks like Sunfall and she actually sings to them. And that is what breaks the ice. I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, definitely. So this is also when we get some of our new Savoan characters, and some of them are super awesome and actually this whole first scene of the first contact really illustrates uh, one other thing that kagan does amazingly well which is describing a new culture to us in a way that makes sense like you can absolutely see why this culture exists the way it does and she does a really good job of explaining how first contact would go down
0: this is real anthropological sci-fi and it's fantastic because star trek does not do this a lot Mm -hmm. sure this culture is this way but why is it this way why did these traditions come about what does this mean
1: yeah her world building is top notch
2: yeah and right off the bat we get to see that gender roles are they basically don't exist as at least not on a visible level to the enterprise crew chekov actually sees a child civilians and says says as far as sex went, uh, he had not the vaguest idea, but he supposed it didn't really matter much at this age, especially since he had seen nothing to indicate sex roles in professions or chores. And they actually originally think Uhura is pregnant because she has visible breasts, and as cat people, their breasts would only swell when they were pregnant. So it's kind of interesting that they're basically right off the bat, sort of explain that gender is kind of meaningless. Like they have they have pronouns that they use, but they don't have roles in terms of their social structure.
1: It's also very clearly um, the parenting is very much it takes a village, but you can see that they have like all the adults in the village fulfill the same kind of roles for them. Okay, so we also get some of our most important Savoan characters here. So Bright Spot is our other kind of teenage girl Jinx being the other one. We have Catch Claw, who is their doctor. And uh later on we find out that Stifftail is their leader and they're all women. They bring up the Iowans and their plague situation with Stifftail, who is their leader, and she immediately is like, nope, and she knocks Kirk right out. Well,
0: that's because <laughs> he's asking about the people who have left. Like straight off the bat. Yes. So she's not like nope to visitors. Yeah. She's like, nope. You don't get to know about that.
2: Yeah, you're being impertinent.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting from our perspective, because we don't know yet, because... Cuffing, which is what she basically does to mm-hmm. him, is actually something that they do to each other quite a lot. Mm-hmm. They cuff the children whenever they have step out of line.
2: There's one point where Doctor Wilson kind of steps out of line and does something without Kirk's permission, and he lectures her. And the cat people are going, "You know, did you cut? Did he cuff her?" It's like, well, he cuffed her with words. So they sort of they liken it to getting a verbal scolding from an authority figure.
1: Yeah, this whole idea of the cuffing starts off one of the things I really like about how Kagan writes this whole situation, which is the nonverbal communication. She tells about their whiskers, how they flick their whiskers forward for this and their tail is very useful in communication where their laughter is actually looping their tail and they will also like wrap their tail around somebody to show affection and pulling their tail as a way to tease them. Like there's there's a lot of really cool stuff there in which it's it's understandable why they would they would use these kind of cues and you actually get used to them quite quickly and she'll use them as a way to indicate the various Savoans moods later on.
2: So they basically decide, you know, it's worth it to stay there and try to develop a relationship with these people and Kirk sort of tasks Suhura with trying to get the clues that they need about the cure. And Wilson tries to build a relationship with the doctor. Catchclaw is the doctor, yes? Mm -hmm. Like, basically everyone's going about in their own way, trying to win their trust so they can get the information about the cure. Wilson
1: also really connects quite a lot with uh, Brightspot, who's the daughter of Stifftail. She's written as kind of a a really kind of rebellious teenage girl, but very thoughtful. She picks up very quickly. She's very curious and smart. And she definitely becomes, for all of the crew, I would say, the one that they trust to ask their questions. And she's an entry point for them into the culture because they feel like they can talk to her in a way that they can't talk to almost anyone else. And there is some like professional uh, relationship going on between Catchclaw and Dr. Wilson as like co-workers almost. But I think Bright Spot is really the one that kind of they get through to right away. Yeah, she's more curious and she wants to impress Dr. Wilson. They have this small little scene where she wants to use the tricorder and she picks it up really, really quickly. And she's just having so much fun with the tricorder that That's something, like, I can just picture uh, they bring all this new stuff and they just want to play with it. Yeah, totally. So we spend a while in the camp. And actually, I would say too long. No, I agree. It was definitely,
2: I wouldn't say it got boring, but there were parts where I was like, get on with the action, (laughs) like Chekhov. Um, invents this awesome shelter building and then they teach him how to build a shelter. And that was cool getting to see Chekhov do stuff, but I don't think it really told us anything about the people or the plot very much.
0: I think it was a lot of world building. Just more and more of it. Of the cultural thing upon cultural thing. And I think it all came back around in the end but I can see where people would think that it were just there too long with nothing else happening. Mm. But they finally figure out That none of the adults really want to tell anybody about this, you know, mass exodus of people because they don't consider them adults. And I think a lot of that came from humans being a lot physically smaller than the Savoans.
1: Yeah, their vulnerability. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so the landing party starts to try to come up with ways to prove themselves as adults so that they can get this information they need to save not only the the other planet, the Iowans, but now this disease is spreading throughout all of the Federation worlds.
1: Yeah, and if we're talking about one of the major themes being names and identity, this is the other one. What makes a person an adult? Because Stifftail actually is being fairly immature here. And then you have her daughter, Brightspot, who, according to their custom, is a child, being much more willing To help, so they have a ritual coming of age. So to be considered an adult in Savoan society, basically they have to walk by themselves, you know, with their peer group from one camp to another, and it's a way to prove that they're an adult now. Yeah, because it's super dangerous.
2: There's like dinosaur (laughs) things in the woods, and if one of them doesn't make it, then they all fail.
0: Yeah, it's not a thing you can do alone, which is really neat. And the explanation that I think Stiftel gives it, she says that you do this as a group because you all need to help each other to be productive in society. Nobody can do everything alone.
1: Yeah. I like the idea of like working together to overcome something. But the problem is, is they get so stuck in this custom that they don't know how to move past it when they need to. When we find out about the walk, this is when we find out why Jinx's name is Jinx. And it's because she has tried the walk two times and been the only survivor at both times. So even though in every way that we would judge it, Jinx is an adult, she is a child in their society. And not only a child, but almost an outcast. And that's when I start to go not sure I really dig this custom, is when it's that rigid.
2: Well, and we sort of find out while they're on the walk that if she fails a third time, she'll be expected to commit suicide.
1: And so it's it's well done in the fact that it it's a custom that makes sense, but they also show kind of the downsides of having such a ritualistic way of proving adulthood. Because it's not like Jinx failed because she's not competent. She failed because of bad luck. And it's just it's a really sad idea to think that they would actually consign one of their most competent and wonderful people to basically death because she couldn't complete this ritual because of things outside of her control.
0: Well, the way I read it is that they're not really expected to commit suicide as much as nobody will go with you after a certain point. Jinx says that it's hard to find people to go with a second time. It's near impossible to find somebody to go with you a third time and after that nobody will go again
1: yeah so she'd be stopped you know if
0: you're if you're bad luck three times so she'd either be considered a child in her society for the rest of her life or like the the other thing that happens is that a lot of people that happens to would end up committing suicide but i don't think they're expected to
1: well first of all what happens to jinx is apparently pretty rare but she does say that there are exceptions that she's heard of of people living like this but that she herself couldn't so i think you're right that it's not like they expect you to it's more like you wouldn't be able to live like this so while they're on the walk
0: and bright spot who's apparently just turned the age where you can start the walk decides to join them. And then Jinx asks if she can go again for their for her third time. So being that the crew now cares a lot about these people that they've learned all this information from about this culture, the stakes get even higher.
1: I like that there's a moment where Kirk is like, if this doesn't work, we have to find a way to help Jinx anyway. He's like, they're not going to leave her to deal with this by herself, no matter what. And I think that's really nice. Um, so yes, th- then they go on the walk. They walk from one camp to the other, and sadly, in between, there is a lot of obstacles. One of them is that Chekhov catches ADF, which we should also mention that the whole time this is going on, McCoy is frantically sciencing on Yao to find a cure. And he does find a, you know, not a cure, but something that slows the disease, which is good buys them more time because we do spend a lot of time in camp
2: but it's like super risky to test it and dr mickey Mikiewicz volunteers to test it on herself because she's also come down with adf and it's uh that's kind of a cool little scene
0: he also finds out that there's a genetic thing that if you have this then you're more likely to if you catch the disease go through it faster to be to be more strongly affected by it And we get our first little hint that, oh, no, Chekhov has this.
1: I love that he runs through their medical files in his head. He's like, are my friends going to be okay?" He's the best. Mm -hmm. So Chekhov starts complaining of, you know, being stiff and out of shape. And it turns out that he actually does have EDF and it progresses very quickly
0: but it is there earlier than you think it is.
1: Subtle writing, Kagan. Nice job. So that obviously adds a lot of problems for the walk. It's really hard to carry someone through this when they're already dealing with a lot of stuff, including apparently something that looks like a saber-toothed tiger.
2: Yeah, and then three of them get separated, Wilson, Kirk, and Brightspot, because Brightspot falls in this rushing river, and then Wilson goes in after her, and then Kirk goes in after Wilson, and everyone's kind of freaked out about that. But they end up being okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and um, we get some more good Spock stuff here. Just in general, I really liked how when they were doing first contact with the Savones, they are like, Mr. Spock is a Vulcan. Please don't touch him. And the Savones are very respectful of that. They make a point of checking everybody's ears every once in a while to make sure that they're, they're okay to touch them. I thought that was really nice. And then we also have a scene where, okay, so Wilson and Kirk and Bright Spot might be dead. And so the rest of the the party is very upset about this. And we know Spock. Spock's, you know, working the solution rather than freaking out like everyone else is. And Uhura has this wonderful scene with him where Jinx gets very upset and is about to attack Spock because she's like, he doesn't care. And Uhura is like, he does care. And it's really nice.
0: Yeah, she basically says if he didn't care, he wouldn't be trying to fix the problems. And then they talk, Uhura and Spock, a little bit after that. He basically thanks her. And she said, well, if I didn't have to explain to Jinx what was going on, I might have slapped you myself.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's totally an understandable reaction. It's, it's one that people have to Spock quite often. Okay, so, so, luckily, everyone survives. Yay! Yay! And Uhura and Jinx and Evan Wilson somehow managed to find, and honestly, I'm not entirely sure I understood how they did this, somehow managed to find out that ADF is actually a childhood disease. It's kind of like, I don't know, chickenpox seems like.
0: So, how this happens, right, is... Uhura has this ancient song that essentially describes the symptoms of ADF. And Evan Wilson has kept saying throughout... I don't know why I use her full name when I talk about her. It seems (laughs) like you should.
1: She has one of those names.
0: It's like George Clooney. But she says that the disease, since it's basically been in two populations, could have changed differently over time. And then I think it's Spock points out that, wait a minute, well, most of the Savoans have perfect pitch. And they eventually figure out that the song that Uhura has describing these symptoms is the same tune but in a different key for a song about this childhood disease called Noisy Baby. So you're right, it's a, almost exactly like chickenpox.
1: Yeah, and um, Jinx is just astounded that Noisy Baby could be the problem. She's like, but we use that plant right there to fix Noisy Baby. So they've been going through this whole terrible journey, and it was just this so simple disease. And actually, that completely makes sense to me. You know, the, the way diseases affect populations, can be very, very different. And they put together this jury-rigged, like, injection of this plant that is needed to cure Chekhov, and they blow it up Chekhov's nose to get it into him. And it works. He is cured.
2: Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And then basically, they're able to get to the city that's at the end of the walk, and... Rehook up with Catch Claw and they all pick their names, and it's all awesome.
1: Yeah, um, once they find the cure, it all progresses very quickly. So they get back, they finish the walk, they're considered adults, but they've already solved the problem, basically. Mm-hmm. So they get on a ship and they go back to Yao and they bring our favorite Savoans with them, Bright Spot and catch claw and jinx all come and they go and and cure the plague yay
2: they're kind of able to bring so many Savalans with them because by proving people's expectations of them wrong and they sort of shame them into you know you withheld this information that was going to kill all these people based on this really old shame and the people sort of accept that that's not a good way forward
1: yeah and uh so how to wrap that up? Uh, we could just go
2: right to the ending, which is they cure the plague, and then we found, find out Evan Wilson, who at this point, I would argue, like she's really supplanted Uhura as the main character. We find out she's not really... Dr. Evan Wilson, the human doctor.
1: Yeah, and I don't even know what she is, really. They imply that she's some sort of trickster. Uh, maybe like a Q? I think
2: she's a Q. Yeah, so basically what happens is through this whole time, we find out more and more stuff about her that's kind of unbelievably impressive. Like that, in addition to being this amazing doctor that who's able to fight Sulu and all of these people on the ship, um, she's a first contact expert, she's great at climbing trees, we find out that she is able to compete program circles around Spock. We find out after she leaves, like she gets a call to go on assignment somewhere else. They try to contact her and they f- they talk to this guy who says he's Dr. Evan Wilson. She says basically like she was no longer needed. She had solved the problems that the Enterprise crew was facing and she goes where she's needed. And they find that she's done things under other names that are super impressive in the past.
1: Yeah. So uh, one of the most common complaints that I was reading in the reviews of this book is about Evan Wilson and about how she is basically a stereotypical Mary Sue character.
2: Okay, so a Mary Sue, it's kind of a problematic term. Basically, it refers to a female character that is considered to be Sort of wish fulfillment for the author. And it's commonly seen in fan fiction. Usual sort of hallmarks are like a female character who is considered maybe like people don't appreciate how smart and gorgeous they are right off the bat, but then everyone comes to appreciate them and they end up being just super skilled at everything. And uh, there is um, a male equivalent called I've Seen a Marty Stew or a Gary Stew, but it doesn't seem to attract nearly the same amount of hatred and critique. So Evan Wilson is, is critiqued as a Mary Sue because, like I said, she's, I think, unrealistically for a human good at so many things. And everyone, even Kirk, who starts out being unsettled by her comes around to really admire her.
0: I think it's worth noting, too, that the term Mary Sue is named after a character from a specific early fan fiction, a piece of Star Trek fan fiction. So that's where the name comes from. That's why it is very associated with Star Trek. If anybody wants to go and find it, it is a 1973 story called A Trekkie's Tale, that was published in a fanzine, because there were no internet boards back then. You know, if I was to write a story about Ensign Jera who fell into a
2: time warp and ended up on the Enterprise, and everyone appreciated how incredibly smart and gorgeous I was, and then <laughs> uh, Riker totally wanted to bone me. Um, but I was like, I don't think so. I'm more of a Picard type. And then I saved the ship and kissed Picard and went home.
1: I I don't know. That sounds like something I'd watch, to be honest. Well, yeah. And that's, that's part of the thing is
2: Mary Sue's, like any character, because we have examples of men who are in these heroic roles that could be considered wish fulfillment, throughout our mythology and our literature. I mean, look at, you know, mythological heroes like Hercules and Captain Kirk could be considered, um, you know, unreasonably perfect. And uh, Sherlock Holmes is another one where he has personal issues, but he's brilliant and has all these skills that no one possibly could have all of those skills and knowledge.
1: Yeah, I just think we're harder on female characters in general. Mm -hmm. And then also there's this aspect of how dare this woman be good at everything? And how dare women have someone to look up to in the same way that we get to look up to all of our heroes that are usually men?
2: Yeah, I mean, women are taught to cut each other down and compete with each other for space instead of working together to open up more space. So we're also kind of, like, through internalized sexism taught to dislike these characters that are about other women being better than us. And that's really unfortunate instead of just being like, this is cool, this is
1: something we could aspire to be. And I can definitely see why evan wilson becomes that because she is i think you said that by the time that she was a better programmer than spock you were like really
2: yeah i mean i think that a mary sue can be done well or it can be done poorly and i think a couple of things different people are going to have the line at where they say this is believable and that was my line is like i could believe she was an amazing doctor and first contact and fighter and tree climber when she started being able to out computer program spock and everyone loves her and then at the very end i was just going eh. but also then we find out she's not human so maybe that changes things but the other thing is i think that the fantasy the wish fulfillment has to be something that can be related to by more than just the author as a single individual.
1: Yeah, I didn't really have a problem with her. The one thing I would say I did have a problem with is that we have this original character that becomes more important than a lot of the members of our original crew, and in this case, specifically Uhura. We wanted this to be a uhura song we wanted this to be focused on uhura and by the end it's very much focused on evan wilson and i it's not even so much that i think she's a bad character it's just like she's a random uh, yeah
0: i enjoyed her a lot and then it she did i think i got more annoyed with her essentially taking over the story yeah then, for the most part, you could almost replace her with any doctor already on the Enterprise because, I mean, her, but her skills are so random, you know, or just split split up her her skills and abilities to the rest of the crew it's just it wasn't even that everything she tried she was good at it's almost like everything that the entire landing party was faced with she was the best at
2: yeah that's true
0: and that's where it gets a little like eye rolly but yeah I don't know if it had been posited to me earlier that she was a trickster or a cue okay maybe I would let it go a little bit more but just the fact that she calls herself a trickster mm-hmm. it almost adds a little bit of a fantasy element into the cycle fiction book and that throws me off a little bit. Yeah,
2: I agree. I found that basically once they go on the walk is when she's really supplanted Uhura. Uhura's there, but there's one part with Kirk remarks on how strong Uhura is and how that surprises him, but she doesn't really have a key role, whereas Wilson definitely does. And before that like Uhura is getting a fair amount of stuff um, in sharing songs with the Bard of the Savalans, but Wilson is just gets more and more and more and she's cool, but but she ends up having this neat relationship with spock where spock is really admiring her intellect and they're playing computer games programming games against each other then like spock loses that connection with uhura that was so cool at the beginning of the novel
1: yeah i would agree i think that that's basically the only real flaw i i find with this book because some of the stuff in the middle that drags a little i still enjoyed it i still think it works Whereas this, it's kind of like you get to the end and you're like, that wasn't really Uhura's song. That was like Evan Wilson's awesomeness.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because Jenna Kagan apparently wanted particularly this story because she had seen Michelle Nichols in a NASA promotional film and thought that Uhura needed, quote, the plum role she deserved. So she really wanted this to be about Uhura, but then she obviously also wanted to create her own original world. And, uh, she actually pitched two sequel novels to this that were basically just focused on, I'm assuming, Evan Wilson. It says the original char- uh, characters that she created in this novel. Um, but they rejected them because they weren't interested in, like, a series about these original characters.
1: Yeah. And I think that you could have easily made this a story without her. Like, they could have had McCoy with them and then have another doctor be on the planet. And then they could have had all of the moments Evan Wilson have give them out among the crew. Because they do have some stuff for, say, Chekhov gets some really cool stuff to do with, you know, finding out that he's apparently good at building and he's good at survival skills and stuff like that. Wouldn't it be cool if Kirk was an awesome tree climber? That makes sense to me. He likes to climb mountains. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, I would say that that's the main criticism I have with this book is is how that ended up, and it kind of ramps up slowly, and then like by the end, you're like, wow, that story was about Evan Wilson, and we don't know who Evan Wilson is. (laughs) Yeah, I found it kind of
2: disappointing. I mean, the idea of a woman trickster god—it's I mean, it's not new, but it's interesting. It's not—I wouldn't say it's overdone. Trickster gods also commonly in mythology play with gender, so they could have done more with that if they really wanted to own that. um, That. Maybe she could have been a, a man in her different presentations. I'm kind of with Sue, like if they had dropped some hints earlier or something that would have primed us for her being some sort of deity or cue or whatever, then I think that would have helped. But I kind of would have just preferred that they stuck with the original series characters a bit more. I'll also just point out that this is like this is not a Mary Sue thing, but something else I noticed is uh, Kagan also creates... Kagan's Laws in the book. Yeah, I noticed that too. is kind of like uh, Leffler's Laws. They reference Kagan's Law of First Contact a few times, which is you'll surprise you more than they will. And it's kind of cute. I generally am not a fan of that, but I did try to check this on, like, is this internalized sexism? Am I just not liking it because it's a woman doing it? I don't know if either of you have read the uh, Harlan Ellison City on the Edge of Forever comics. Mm -mm. But Harlan Ellison obviously is a huge egomaniac. And they released a new series of comics based on his original screenplay for Sitting on the Edge of Forever. And there's a homeless person in them who sort of is like the the truth teller who ends up getting uh, killed. And they, they draw Harlan Ellison's face as this character. So I was like, that also really annoyed me. So I think I'm allowed to be a little bit annoyed
0: with Kagan's Law.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just kind of is. It's a it's silly. Yeah, it's like naming a planet after yourself.
0: I'd be interested to see if anybody else ever referenced it afterwards. (laughs) Like any of the other novels or anything picked it up, but I'm not about to go read all of them to find out. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay, so we talked a little bit about some of the major themes. I think the, the first one that really starts to come into play is the idea of being able to name yourself and how important it is that people call you by your right name and allow you to be who you are. I guess it's not just about names, it's about identity too. I thought that there were so many examples of it and it
2: was across the cultures that we visited and that was really cool because I think that's a good lesson for us in today's society to respect how other people want to be named and identified. You know, it this society like gender pronouns didn't come up but that's certainly something we deal with today. And also like how people identify in terms of race and gender. So it's, um, it's important to check in with people and to respect their, their choices on how they want to. Uh, be identified.
1: Yeah, trans pronouns is definitely one of the things I was thinking about with this, but also what we would consider foreign names Mm -hmm. or what, you know, Americans would consider foreign names, not bothering to figure out how to pronounce them. Mm -hmm. is just really a a very subtle, not even really that subtle, but racism. It is racist to Mm -hmm. not want to take time to try and pronounce somebody's name. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think it's really, really rude and something that we need to get much better at. Yeah.
0: And I know people who do have difficult names that they're just sick of essentially hearing their name pronounced incorrectly. Mm -hmm. You know, they want, they they start going by a nickname or they just say, oh, just call me this or that. Mm -hmm. And it's a little sad. And I think Uzo Aduba actually tells a story about how she asked her mother when she was young if she could start going by, I forget what name it was, but some very, you know, like traditionally Americanized name. She says her mother sat her down and explained to her, this is what your name means, and this is why it's important to us. And she never asked that again.
1: And you see that in Hollywood, too, where people with very, like, Jennifer Aniston, that is not her name. Her name is very Greek. Mm-hmm. Stuff like
2: that. Or even, like, going back to, you know, the era where women used initials like dc fontana so people didn't know they were women and just like people not being able to use their authentic identity because it doesn't fit into the mainstream culture
1: and you know we even have an example of this with star trek with alexander siddig who now Mm -hmm. goes by alexander siddig but used to go by because he's sudanese siddig alpha deal yeah so i mean i understand why actors and you know people would want to change their name um because it must get so frustrating it's also really sad that they have to. So I really, I really love this theme. And I think she does a really good job of portraying it in a believable and non-preachy way. Mm-hmm. Um, so especially the, the most um, overt uh, version of this is everybody coming back after the walk and being able to choose their own name. Um, and I do like that. Evan Wilson and Kirk have this moment where she tells him that she calls him Captain because that's how he sees himself. And then later, when he gets a chance to choose his name, he tells people to call him Captain without even thinking about it. That's who Kirk is. That's his identity, is Captain. So I just think that that's really beautifully done in this book.
0: I really love that. Early on, Jinx hears the universal translator give Uhura's first name as Star Freedom. That's how it translated into their language. So after this walk and after, like, the bonding that the crew has done with the Savowans, she names herself another Star Freedom. And, like, I was ready to tear up at that, because what an impact that they have had on this character's life. And she also names herself Tu Yao, which she's basically like spitting in the face of her culture and saying you don't want to deal with this but i'm gonna deal with this and i'm gonna go with them and i'm going to help these people who are related to us i was like way to go another star freedom yeah, and i
1: love that after she chooses that name it's not just the Savoans who are used to this process it's the crew too they start calling her another star freedom and even kagan as an author starts calling her another star freedom
2: the other theme that I really liked is the theme about adulthood and like what it means to be an adult. I think that it's most succinctly sort of captured in there's a line that Evan has where she's talking to Bright Spot and Jinx about Stifftail and the others not wanting to resolve this problem, and she says, "So who's more adult, someone who works like mad to avoid a problem, or somebody who works like mad to solve it?" So there's this idea that being an adult means that you're gonna not hide from uncomfortable truths and you're going to face things head on. I think that's cool.
1: I also like Spock um, has a moment where of Jinx, he says, I consider her to be quite capable of taking responsibility for her own actions. And as she has shown by her care for Mr. Chekhov, willing to accept the responsibility for others as well. It is difficult to assess the maturity of a person or of another species or culture but in my estimation she is an adult. And I I like that as well the idea of adulthood being re- being able to take responsibility for yourself and for others.
0: There's also a scene that Jinx has with Dr. Wilson where she's saying you're a doctor. I think Jinx replies something like I'm not even an adult. She's like no, you you went you have a patient you're treating your patient you're mixing up this this medicine that he needs you're a doctor. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think around the time that Jinx starts seeing herself as a doctor, she's calling herself a doctor and she's thinking of herself as an adult and thinking, I don't need somebody else to tell me anymore that I'm this or I'm that. I'm deciding for myself who I am. Mm -hmm.
2: It's really interesting that it's it's not just about – I think in our culture, adulthood is considered very much about independence, like financial independence and independence from your parents, like moving out, figuring out your career. And in this, it is – being, like, more fully able to pull your weight in cooperation with the rest of your society.
1: Yeah, because I was thinking about how we consider adulthood. And obviously, for legally, it's, it's an age. It's a number, right? 18. But, I mean, I'm thinking about, like, myself at 18 and, like, other people I knew at the same age. And, I mean, it really varies, doesn't it? It's not based on age. It's based on maturity and experience. It's not as simple as putting a number on it. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to think of like comparable rituals that we have in our society. And one thing that I was thinking of is the Amish have a a coming of age ritual called Rumspringa, where they basically let their teenagers go out into the larger world and then make a decision on whether or not they want to stay within the Amish community. That was something i could think of but for the most part i feel like we have a handful of kind of unofficial rituals but i don't i don't think that we grad (laughs) prom prom was one of them that i was thinking of graduation turning 21 i would have
2: rather gone on a a dangerous walk through the forest than have to do (laughs) my prom and grad again just saying
1: i had fun at my prom but i certainly understand the the feeling um but yeah that's what i was thinking of of like these kind of like cultural touchstones that we consider as like these coming of the age moments
0: well there's the bar and bat mitzvah too that's true even though that happens at 13 and that's what you know we here consider very young culturally it's sort of like you you have responsibility for yourself now right
2: yeah well that's because it it is such an old tradition too and like the idea of adolescence is pretty a pretty new idea historically speaking in western society but i think even now that our sort of social definition of adulthood is being pushed further because we aren't seeing that same, like, you know, as soon as you graduate school, you've got a job and you're having a kid right away. Like, all of these things that used to be considered markers of adulthood are getting pushed off or people are choosing not to exercise them.
1: Well, I don't even consider myself an adult and I'm 30. (laughs) Like, the other day I was watching Star Trek and I was eating Cinnamon Toast Crunch out of Tupperware because I hadn't done my dishes and I was sitting there thinking, I am 30 years old. (laughs) (laughs) What is wrong with me? I'm not married, and I don't have a home, and I don't plan on, you know, getting married and having kids for a while. And I think that everything just keeps getting pushed back.
0: I would think if we really want to find something to equate to the walk, would be the college experience, or at least what <laughs> what is the stereotype of the college experience. And I'm not even kidding.
2: Definitely, rather fight saber-toothed tigers.
0: No, but like, because you you're leaving home, and in this stereotype, you're going to another town or another city. And you're dealing with new people and you're trying to get through it. And maybe you go to tutoring and that's the group aspect of it. (laughs) But when you're done, when you leave college, you're kind of expected to have this level of maturity that you didn't have four years ago when you graduated high school. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though nobody teaches you how to be an adult. And even though I have two years on Andy, I will still eat cereal out of some Tupperware. (laughs) But
1: then that also brings up some interesting ideas of like, not everyone goes to college. And, mm-hmm. you know, does that mean that people who start working right out of high school become adults faster? Like, I think that there are some really interesting right. that's, dynamics that's there. That's
0: why I say the stereotypical college experience, because not everybody goes through that. Yeah.
1: So we should probably
2: wrap up, but I did just have a couple super quick little moments from the book that were like my other little nitpicky critiques, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and they're all just to do with Evan Wilson being, I would say, like, a little bit objectified. Um, and I don't think she was over-sexualized at all. I think she was given a really round, well-rounded character, but it was just the way the guys were behaving towards her. So, like, there's this part near the end where Chekhov has been super sick and they blow the plant stuff up his nose and he wakes up and he goes, Captain... Where am I, sir? And then Captain Kirk goes, In a most enviable position, Mr. Chekhov, with your head in Dr. Wilson's lap. And I'm just like, Oh...
0: Yeah, that was a. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. And then
2: Bones at the end threatens to spank her. (laughs) Which, I mean, that's fairly true to the original series. We got, like, Kirk threatening to spank land of Troyes and stuff, but still gross. And also, this is 1985 when this book was written, so I'm expecting a slight degree better. And at the end, like, she kisses Chekhov goodbye, and McQuay goes, Don't I get a kiss
1: too? And I'm like, Oh. He also calls. I think it's Chapel. He says, good girl about. um, I did notice that. Oh, yeah.
2: Yes. Chapel really, she just gets sick, and then all that we see of her later is that she's Feeling very insecure about the fact that she's lost her hair, so we don't really see like what's going on from her perspective. And it's already like a substantial book. I don't think we needed Chapel's perspective, but it's a little bit disappointing that she's mentioned. And then she
0: was essentially in a coma for the entire book. Yeah. And well, I think Sulu gets a little shortchanged too. If we want to be fair, he says like three things, but <laughs> mm-hmm. he's not self-conscious about his hair. So
2: yeah, I just found it a little disappointing that she doesn't have really anything happening for a position of strength. Yeah, absolutely. But overall, I thought this was a really fun book and I would highly recommend it. Like the a lot of the standalone novels, it's hard to tell and like I thought this was maybe going to be ridiculously bad and entertaining but it was actually really good.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. As we have discussed, there were some flaws. It was not perfect but I had no problem reading it again. It's a really fun book and I really like what she's trying to say mm-hmm. with it. And
2: if you want to help us pick what to read next, go to our Goodreads. Yeah, yeah, we have a goodreads book club so if you go on goodreads it's under their groups you can search we hope you'll you'll come join us you can help us discuss this book if you haven't yet and or you can give us your suggestions for future books we're particularly looking for novels that are standalone novels preferably about TOS, TNG, or early Deep Space Nine, so we're not spoiling things for Andy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I am going to try and put in a a big plug for reading the Liviana Charvanic novels because we all know how much I adore her. But please come and give us, you know, some suggestions because I think it's really fun to discuss these all as a group. Hi, folks! Just wanted to let you know that Women at Warp
2: is now on Patreon. So, if you've been enjoying our show and you'd like to help us do things like offset our costs for hosting, upgrade our equipment, and most importantly, get our Star Trek feminist analysis out to more fans, please head over to P A T R E O N slash Women at Warp to pledge your support. Even a dollar or two a month gets you access to exclusive online bonus content. Again, if you are interested and able to support us,
1: please head over to patreon.com slash women at warp. Oh, so that was our first book club. That was really fun, guys. Thanks. Yay. So, Jarrah, why don't you tell people where you can be found elsewhere on the internets? Thanks. Um, you can
2: find me at trekkifeminist.tumblr.com. And I'm also on Twitter at no, Jarrah Penguins. So that's J A R R A H Penguin.
0: And how about you, Sue? Sure. You can find more from me, blogs, and podcasts over at anomalypodcast.com. A N
1: O M A L Y podcast.com. And I'm Andy. You can follow. Follow my live tweeting of Star Trek. I am on Deep Space Nine, woo. Over at Twitter at First Time Trek. And you can also find my archive project at FirstTimeTrek.tumblr.com. Thanks so much for listening.